But as you can see from the screen here, it's been up there for a bit. We're continuing our series. The title of the message is In Christ, and then the glamorous part two I added this time. So In Christ, part two. We've been going through this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We're going to, Lord willing, finish that section here this morning. But, of course, this has been a part of a greater or bigger study on the prayers of the Apostle Paul. And as we brought out before, this is one of the most Christ-centric passages in terms of focusing on what it means to positionally be in Christ or to identify as a child of God or being standing in the shoes of Jesus Christ, being identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And as you think about being in Christ, Christianity properly understood, it puts the spotlight on God and his provision for man. Christianity properly understood puts the spotlight on God and his provision for man. You are not the focus. What you can do for God is not the focus. The focus is on who he is and what he has done for you. We, begin, we began this prayer a couple of weeks ago by noting that it's a prayer of praise. It's, if we were going to summarize it, it could be said, Praise be to God for all he has done through Christ. Back to our title, in Christ or through Christ. Because of Christ, the focus is on Christ. So if it's a prayer of praise, ultimately when you look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be Him, praiseworthy. All praise to Him is the idea. But praise for what? Praise to God for all He has done through Christ for us. That's sort of the idea. And God's provision for man, it revolves around the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can't think about Christianity without thinking about Christ. It means to be a Christ one. We have access to God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we can become children of God through simple faith in what Christ has done for us as he paid completely the debt that we owed when he died on Calvary for all of our sins. And so as you think about Christianity, again, properly understood, it keeps that focus on Jesus Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, is what the Hebrew author says, as we talk about running with endurance the race that is set before us. So if that's the mission, if that's what we have in front of us, is we're running a race that God has set before us, a mission that involves living to lift him up, to exalt him, to put the spotlight on him. That might look a little bit differently in your life as the Spirit leads you and directs you, but the mission remains the same. How can my life song sing to you? How can my life be about lifting you up? And as I do that, the Hebrew author again said, looking unto Jesus, I do that, I run that race with endurance and patience by looking unto Jesus, not only the author, but the finisher of my faith. It always comes back to him. Isn't that kind of obvious? But we forget that, right? We, We identify, we say, I'm a Christian, but we forget it's all about him. We think about ourselves or we come to even a Christian assembly like this, but but we've forgotten it's not about me. It's about him. And so as you think about being in Christ positional or, or positionally or seeing our identity in there, it's because everything revolves around him. Every facet of spiritual life is made possible because of him, by him, and through him. And that includes things like access to God. We had access to God through Christ. The blessings of God, they flowed through Christ. Fellowship with God is made possible 
because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. His spirit inside of us that makes it possible for us to have this intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Now we saw aspects of this as we started diving into what does it mean to be identified with Christ or be viewed or think of myself positionally as in Christ. We started to see that in verses 3 through 6 in our first part of this study. Now let's read those verses and we'll just be reminded of some, some of the aspects of of this, every facet of spiritual life being made possible because of him, by him, and through him. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what has he done to be blessed? He has blessed, or be praised, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, through what mechanism? In Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, the focus is on Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. What was the mechanism again? By Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to show how amazing His grace is as we're trophies of His grace, as testimonies of His grace. We're exhibit A of God's grace by which through His grace He made us accepted in the one who's beloved is our take on that. Now accepted in all who are loved is another take on that, but accepted in the one who is beloved, meaning it's a reference to being in Christ. And that's why I don't know about your Bible, but in mine, the beloved is capitalized. Being accepted in the one who God loves. I'm now accepted because of my identity with Christ. But as we think about some of the aspects of God providing for every facet of our spiritual lives, you see that in those verses, every spiritual blessing was made available and accessed through Christ. You saw that in verse 3. Believers were chosen to be identified with Christ for a particular purpose. We see that in verse 4. What was that particular purpose? That we would be holy and without blame before him. What's the focus of all this? In love. Jesus Christ was the means by which believers are adopted into the family of God. We see that in verse 5. And then God graciously accepts us because of our union with his dearly loved son in verse 6. You think about every facet of spiritual life is made possible because of him, by him, and through him. And as you think about a continuation of this idea of what is connected with being in Christ positionally. How does that identity that I have shape my future? What does that look like? What has God done for me that makes him so worthy of praise? And how did he do it all through Christ? Well, we continue with that here this morning because you see, how do I become in Christ? Well, one who believes in Christ is now identified with Christ and said to be in Christ. It's an it's a idea of positionally being born into something, being born into the family of God, but now being called one who is in Christ. So if you think about 2 Corinthians 5.17 even, it says, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How do I become in Christ? By putting my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now I'm born again. I have a new identity. I have a new family. I'm adopted. I'm officially placed into God's royal family. And he sees me through the lens of his son. He sees my standing as if I'm standing in the shoes of Christ because I'm wrapped now with the righteousness 
of Christ. His righteousness is credited to my account. And when God sees me now, because of my faith in the work of his son, he sees the righteousness of his son that's now imputed to me. It's integrated into me. It's put to my account so that I can now, though I'm a sinner, I can now be seen to be in a right standing with a holy God not on the basis of anything that I could have done because I could do nothing to make myself righteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of my works of righteousness were filthy rags, but because of applying Christ's righteousness to my account through faith in his work, his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf, I'm now seen to be in a right standing because of Christ's righteousness, which is on on my account. So that's how a sinful man could be found to be in a right standing with a holy God on the basis of what another had done for him, not because of anything he had done for God. And that's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. That's what grace is about, friends. Unmerited favor, God doing something for me, giving me something, motivated by love, for God loved the world so much, motivated by love because he cared so much about me even though I had done nothing to warrant it. Pretty amazing. But that's the testimony of what the gospel is, the good news message of God's plan of rescue for sinners like you and I. Now, as we talked about part one of this series in verses three through six, we noted that this prayer of Paul represents the most comprehensive biblical exposition regarding what being in Christ positionally entails. In fact, In 12 verses, a reference to being in Christ is made 12 times. 12 times in 12 verses. So as we keep going, let's pick up our reading here in verses 7 through 14 and take a look at the material that we're hoping to get through here this morning. Verse 7. So we just get done with verse 6, to the praise of his glory, by which he made us accepted in the one that he loves. Now verse 7, in him, another reference to our position in Christ, the, the means of access to God, we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. There you have another reference to a positional identity in Christ. In him, again, there's another reference. We have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ, there we have it again, should be to the praise of his glory. In him, there you have it again, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation in whom, another reference to being in Christ, in Christ also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So over and over Again, we see it. But as we dive into verse 7 here, we have in him, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins or the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. This is a verse you should think about memorizing if you haven't. Wonderful verse. In him we have redemption though. Let's start with that. In him we have redemption. Now, we're going to see in this section of verses here, in verses 7 through 14, there's going to be four primary phrases. And this is the first one. In him we have 
redemption. That's the first primary focal phrase. Now, remembering that this whole section from verse 3 to verse 14 is all one sentence in Greek. So, you talk about some of your teachers that were giving you a hard time in English class for run-on sentences. You just say, well, if it's good enough for the Bible, it's good enough for me. <laughs> one, one verse here. This is all one verse in Greek. So, as you're thinking about this, though, you have this primary idea here. In Him we have redemption. Now, everything else through the end of verse 10 modifies or expands on this primary statement of positional truth. In Him we have redemption. Now, when you think about redemption, it's defined as to set free, to liberate, or to deliver by paying a ransom. This is a slightly different word for redemption than to be bought out of a slave market of sin. It's the same, it's, interp- it's translated with the same word redemption, but the actual underlying word focuses a little bit more on to liberate, to set free, to deliver by paying a ransom. Now in him, we have redemption through his, lo- his blood, but that's what redemption is talking about, to be delivered by paying a ransom. Now think about 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. This came to my mind as I was looking at this section talking about redemption and what was the means of being redeemed? We're going to see that it's through his blood is the next phrase, but how was I liberated or set free? See, I was in bondage to the debt, the penalty that was associated with being born into a race of sinners and then choosing sin myself, choosing rebellion, choosing rejection, the things that came naturally to me. As a result of that, I found myself in a position where I was estranged from a holy and just God. But God in his love didn't want to leave me that way. So he put in place, put in motion a plan of redemption, a way to liberate or deliver or set me free from the bondage to sin that I was in in terms of the penalty or the debt that I owed for sin. Now the means of that we see is through his blood. That was the means of redemption. That was how the debt was satisfied. And Peter does a really nice job of bringing it out here in 1 Peter 18, 1, 18 through 19. He says that he's reminding believers of this as he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with the kinds of things that people would say would buy off or pay off a debt. You know, this is, this is the human approach to trying to put, to remedy the problem that man has with being a sinner is that we try to religion promotes this idea that we could somehow buy off God by giving a lot of money, doing the best that we could, jumping through religious hoops, getting certificates and, and these kinds of things from various churches that would somehow convince us that we were in a better standing than the next guy and that we were more entitled to redemption than the next guy, that we should be closer to the front of the line and if God's going to take the top 50%, I hope I have made it into that by investing in the kinds of things that the world would say have value. But God's like, that's not my plan. There is no value in those things. The the problem was far more serious than that. The debt that was owed for sin was death for sin. So there was only two options. Either it had to be my death to pay the just demands of the debt that I owed, or it had to be somebody else dying in my place. And that's the picture that the Bible paints from beginning to end about God's grace and his plan of rescuing those who were hopeless and helpless and hellbound. How God had had to undertake to provide a substitute who could take the place of the guilty. 
It's that simple. And over and over and over, the stories and the illustrations and the storyline of the Bible as it's going through is man is helpless apart from God intervening. Man operating independent of God is a flop and a failure. There is no hope apart from God undertaking to provide what man lacks and what man needs. And from beginning to end, that's the story of the Bible. Why can't we get it? Why can't we figure that out? Why are there so many who are convinced that you do your best and then God does the rest? That that's the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is you have nothing to offer God that would please Him apart from what is produced by His Spirit working inside of you. And that pleases Him because He's the one producing it. Amen? Here's our, here's our verses though. You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. What else weren't you redeemed by? The aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. So many approaches to God are nothing more than tradition that, in fact, can't even be traced back to the Bible. I'll risk ruffling a few feathers here this morning. One tradition is that when babies are born, we would dedicate them, which is a biblical thing uh, in the Old Testament, but that we would baptize them. We baptize babies. And that that would then somehow place them into the family of God. And many churches would issue a certificate of some kind that you could file away next to the social security card and the birth certificate and be like, I have the physical things taken care of. Now I have the spiritual well-being of my child taken away. Now, do I think it's necessarily a horrible thing that as a parent you would have a posture that would say, it's my desire, I'm going to have a ceremony here at church where it's my desire to let people know that my, my hope, my prayer, is that I could raise this child in a way that would bring God glory. I could introduce this child to who Jesus is and what he's done. I could, I could introduce them to the things of faith. And we're going to actually have a little bit of a, a, of a ceremony about that. I don't necessarily think that in and of itself is the end of the world. But when you believe that by baptizing this baby, this baby is now in the family of God and you make it about something different than faith, the individual child having faith in God's finished work on his behalf through the work of Jesus, you've now introduced a different kind of a gospel message because you're saying the good news is that the child is going to heaven because they've been baptized as an infant instead of what the Bible says is the good news is that anyone can go to heaven the moment they put their personal faith in what Jesus did for them on the cross. Now, can an infant do that? The answer is no. So then I challenge somebody, you talk about traditions of men, I say, show me in the Bible, show me where an infant was baptized so that they could have everlasting life. Show me one example where Paul or Peter or Timothy or any of the New Testament writers advocated that people would baptize their babies as a means of introduction into God's family. And I'll tell you, you could search the scriptures from beginning to end and you're not going to find one single example of an infant ever being baptized. Now, how can that become a core theology of a Christian church if it's not even found in the Bible, if there's not one example found in the Bible? Now, what is it? If we're going to have to label it, what is it? It was probably good intentions that went awry, good intentions that kind of misunderstood what the text of the Bible actually says. But what is it really? It's a tradition that was passed down from your fathers. 
And do we have some traditions, some different ways that we do things? Probably. Are they all rooted in a chapter and verse in the Bible? Not necessarily. There's different things that we've done. I can't identify any off the cuff, but just different ways of doing things. Even let's just say how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Is that the only way to celebrate communion? No. Is it something we should be doing? Yeah. It's a good way to remember what Christ has done for us. But is it kind of a tradition the way we do it? Yeah, it's a traditional way that we learn to do it. It got passed down and passed down, and that's how we do it. Is it wrong? No. It's just, it is a little bit of our traditional way of doing something that the Bible actually calls for. Now, there's other things you could point to that the Bible doesn't necessarily call for. Does the Bible call for us to do a graduation ceremony at church? No. We just do. Is it a good thing? Yeah, I liked it. Did you like it? You know? In, in any event, man, we got off into some different waters here. We're not redeemed by the traditions of men. It's not the traditions of men that can redeem us. It's faith in the finished work of Christ. And we see that here. It's with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's how we were redeemed. It's all about the blood. How Jesus was willing to become sin for us even though he knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God through him, in him. In him we have redemption. It's through his blood that we can be redeemed, that we can be liberated, that we can be set free. There's no theology that's more important than get, to get right than this, friends. You think about all the things you got to get right. How can I, a sinner, be liberated and set free? It's through the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for me and my appropriating by faith that sacrifice and applying that payment to my account. It's that simple. So, we have redemption through his blood. Now, through his blood, that's the means. The blood of Christ, his death, it paid the debt owed by all mankind and it satisfied the just demands of God's holy law, which decreed that the wages of sin is death. You can see that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, just through Jesus Christ our Lord generically? No, through Jesus Christ our Lord being willing to die a death he didn't deserve for you. That's the gospel. So you can't separate the gospel from the cross, from Christ's burial, from Christ's resurrection that proved that he was who he said he was. It's not general faith in Jesus. It's that Jesus became something for me that he was not. He took my sins and he bore them in his own body on the tree. That's the gospel message. And so we see that here. Such a clear passage. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Positionally, we're now in Christ. Now, what does that involve? It also includes the forgiveness of sins. You see that in our next clause, which identifies the results of Christ, the result of Christ's payment. So through the redemption that we have as a result of the payment he made, we have the forgiveness of sins. Is it your sin that is, is there any sin that's condemning you right now? Not positionally. Not practically, it might be interfering with your relationship with God. It might be getting in the way. It might be creating an obstacle in your life but not positionally. Positionally, your sins were all paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. How many of them? All of them. Which sins remain for you to pay? None of them. So you just follow the logic of it. 
That's why Paul can confidently say in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are what? In Christ. The moment of my faith I become positionally identified with Christ because of his payment on my behalf. Now there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ. We won't go to John 3.18. He who believes is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's no condemnation for sin to the one who is in Christ. Then we see the last phrase, according to the riches of his grace. And that identifies the motive behind Christ's deliverance. It was because of his great love and how rich his grace was as it was bestowed upon us that we could be set free by Christ dying in our place and we could be redeemed and liberated and delivered by the ransom being paid by another, the innocent spotless Lamb of God. We go to verse 8 and it says, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And this continues the thought about the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He made to abound toward us refers to superabundance. The adjective means abundance. The, the verb, or sorry, the noun means abundance. So you put them together and you have this superabundance or oversized grace is this idea when you look at that word to abound. He made to abound toward us. We have this oversized grace that God has directed in our direction. Now, in all wisdom and prudence, prudence refers to understanding or insight. So in all wisdom and understanding, it refers to one particular example of God's abundant provision. Now, God has provided everything that we need for a life of godliness, a spiritual life. Every facet of spiritual life is connected to Christ's provision for us. And God bestowed, his, he graciously bestowed his wisdom and understanding on us. He did it abundantly, meaning he didn't hold back. There was a superabundance of grace that played out in part in God giving us some wisdom and understanding. He gave that to us. Now, most translations have understanding or insight is another word that is used in place of prudence. He gave us understanding and insight. We didn't have it apart from him. It's only through our identity in Christ and our position in Christ that we have that. So then he keeps going about this wisdom and prudence. One aspect of it is that he gave us this understanding and insight as it relates to what? having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So this provides an example of one area in which God provided wisdom and understanding or insight. God made the mystery of his will known to us because he purposed or determined to do so according to his good pleasure. Now when we think about God's good pleasure, it's because it seemed good to him in terms of promoting the best interests of his children. It's not just like God is a whimsical kind of a God. That's not what's meant by this phrase. It's because according to, he purposed or determined to make known the mystery of his will to us because it seemed good to him in terms of what would be best for us. That's the best way to understand that phrase. That's the kind of God you have. That he's making decisions that are based on your best interests. What he thinks would be best for you. And then we're going to see the rest of, verse, of, the, of the verse in verse 10 refer to what God revealed about his will or his plan. 
So he revealed the mystery of his will. Now, what was that mystery? It was something that is revealed now that previously hadn't been known. And verse 10 tells us, this is a part of what God revealed or gave us understanding or insight about. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. And it's all going to be in him, in Christ. Again, we keep just hitting that over and over again as we go through this passage. So what aspect of God's eternal plan or will was he now making known? That's the question. The answer is that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That's what God made known. He gave us understanding that that's going to happen in the future. All things are going to be gathered together in Christ under the headship, under the supremacy of Christ. Christ is the head over all things. He is the preeminent one. That's going to happen in the future. Yes, that includes everything in heaven and on earth. How many things? All things. If you were confused, all things in heaven and all things in earth. The totality of it all will be brought together in one under Christ. Now you say, what does God's plan When does God plan on accomplishing this part of his eternal plan? Well, it tells us in the dispensation, which refers to a method of administration, of the fullness of times. Now, the fullness of times means the chosen, right, appropriate, or destined period of time, age, or season. So at the right time, at the right age, and the right season, at the appropriate or chosen time, The method of administration is going to be for God to put all things in one under Christ. And we see this a little bit when we talk about the fullness of times. I shouldn't have put it up there so quickly. As you were going to think about where else have I heard that phrase or seen that phrase. This is one that came to to my mind. There's probably more I didn't actually search. I just, this came to my mind. At just the right time, at the appropriate time, at the planned, at the planned time. You know, you're thinking about that definition at the chosen, right, appropriate, or destined period of time. So when the fullness of time had come, when the right time, the chosen time, the appropriate time had come. Now that's all subject to God's plan, to God's understanding. It doesn't necessarily have to make sense to us. Why would God say this is the right time versus any other time in human history? But at the right time, at the appropriate chosen time, in the right season... God saw fit to send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to what was the purpose for sending his son? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. That we could be children of God, sons of God, through the redemption that is found where? In Christ, through Christ, by Christ, because of Christ. All the focus again coming back to Christ. And just as there was an appropriate season, a chosen time, a set time that God chose to send his son, there's also going to be a chosen, set, appropriate season or time where God is going to bring all things together in heaven and in earth under the headship of Jesus Christ. See, God's eternal plan contemplates a restoration to that former condition when all things were in perfect unity. Paradise was Lost, sin entered into the world. God's going to settle all scores. He's going to make it all right. That's how the story ends, with God making things right. So his plan contemplates that. 
creation is going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption. One day the whole universe will be brought together and restored in and through Christ. One day every knee will bow, Philippians 2 10 says, and God's creation will be unified around Christ. One eternal kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth. One eternal kingdom on earth and in heaven in which righteousness shall, shall dwell. That's God's plan for the future. He's revealing it to be tied to or centering around Christ. It's going to be in Christ, under the headship of Christ. Now we see verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So here we're going to see the second of these four primary phrases. So we spent all of that time on the first phrase, which is, in him we have redemption. That's the first primary aspect of being in Christ. We have redemption in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ. Now we say, we see our second aspect to it here, or the, same pri- the second primary thought, which is, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. So in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, this is, again, the second of four. Now, all the rest of the clauses through the end of verse 12, they modify or expand on this statement of positional truth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I want you to know that this, this phrase could be understood in a few ways. And I'm going to share three of them with you here really quickly. One, it could be understood as Christians have received a positional and practical inheritance in Christ. So in him we have already and and continue to have this inheritance in Christ. The second one is that Christians are chosen, we're chosen as heirs, chosen to be heirs, heirs of God, to inherit from their royal father. And the third is that Christians were designated as the inheritance, God's heritage or possession through Christ. And I actually like the third one the best. In fact, Pastor Weefel actually pointed this out at a Bible study that we had a while, while back. But Wiest is an author that you could maybe have heard of, but a uh, biblical scholar who has, does word studies that are based on the Greek language. And he says the, some of the transcripts, he says the better transcripts. What does he mean by that? I don't know. Old, sometimes it's majority of transcripts. Sometimes it's oldest of transcripts. There's a lot of debate about that. Most of the time there's any debate, just, so you can, just as an aside, you can trust the reliability of the Bible in front of you. The, the, the variety that you see is so minimal in the differences in these transcripts and manuscripts that are available. There's, I haven't come across a, an instance where the disagreement between the majority of transcripts versus oldest transcripts where it would significantly alter the meaning in a way that would be unpalatable from a just concise doctrinal or cohesive, I, that's the word I want, not, co- not concise, a cohesive doctrinal perspective. These changes are about subtleties where each variation could, could, and is, could be true and is true. It doesn't dramatically alter the meaning. But he says that the best manuscripts put the focus on this third aspect of it, that we in fact are the inheritance. Not that we've obtained some specific inheritance, but that we've become God's heritage or possession through Christ. We've been designated as God's inheritance. And I love the feel of that. Do you like the sound of that? I'm, I'm his heritage. 
I'm, I'm his purchased possession. You can find passages that would reinforce that idea, right? You can also certainly find passages that speak to the treasures that we've inherited because of our position in Christ too. So why would you squabble about something like this? They're, they're, all, tr- they're all true and they're all great. And we can celebrate. Remember, this is a prayer of praise. We can say, praise be to God for all that he's done through Christ, including this particular thing. Now we see the next part of that, which is says, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this can be summed up very succinctly. It means it refers to God, God having planned this in advance as he saw fit. When you see the counsel of his will according, as he saw fit. To predestine something is to plan or set the boundaries in advance, to plan in advance. So God planned in advance that he would either, if you take it as he would give us a positional inheritance in Christ, or he would choose us as future heirs, present and future heirs in Christ, or he would designate us as God's heritage or possession. Either way, he saw fit to do that through Christ in eternity past. Wonderful truth. Now we move on to verse 12. Verse 12 says that we, there was a purpose in mind, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So as you dig into that a little bit, you see that this is still a continuation of this phrase, in him we have obtained an inheritance. What was the purpose behind that? It's an explanation of God's intended purpose for either providing an inheritance to believers or making believers his inheritance or heritage. Either way, it was so that we should be to the praise of his glory. That was his reasoning for doing that. This is God's purpose in making believers his inheritance, if you take it the third way that I did. See, it's not for our own glory, but that through us, his glory might be revealed. He gave us or made us to be an inheritance for his glory, so that his glory could be revealed in us. Now, I hope a phrase is coming to your mind. I hope the phrase is trophies of his grace. I bring him praise just because of what he's done for me, a dirty, rotten stinker. You see the idea here? As God provides for me everything that is necessary for my spiritual well-being in Christ, as God faithfully provides all of that for me positionally, and then he makes it possible for me to practically live a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, walk with him in a way that would bring him glory, that would redeem the time that I've been given, he undertakes to make all of that possible. And he does it for a guy like me. So that you could see me knowing what a train wreck I am. People who know me better would know even more. People you grew up with, people you went to school with, you could start telling them about Jesus and his love and what Jesus has done in your life and they would say, why? Why would he do that? You're just a nobody. I am a nobody who now wants to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. Maybe that should be a song of the month. (laughs) They call that foreshadowing. 
trophies of his grace. Are you a trophy of God's grace? If you don't see that, then you've missed it altogether. You've done nothing in and of yourself that would make you worthy, that would make you lovable, that would make you acceptable. You're accepted in Christ. You're accepted because you're seen in Christ. And when people see that, they're going to say, if God could save that guy, he could save anybody. If God can work in that gal's life, he can work in anybody's life. A trophy of his grace. We should be to the praise of his glory. Isn't that awesome? And you see the thing that comes first here, though? That we who what? We trusted in Christ. That's your only part in this. That's the prerequisite to this, is that you trusted in Christ. The focus isn't on that God chose you individually. We touched on that in our first message. Go listen to that again. It's not like God chose you against your will to make this happen to you. It's the reason you can be to the praise of his glory is because he made an offer of salvation to everyone and you chose to take it. You chose to put your trust in the one who chose to save everyone who would trust him. And that brings God glory. Now, verse 13, in him... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, there's two main parts here to this. In whom you also trusted. That's the third primary phrase. So we have our first one again was in him. You have redemption through his blood. Then we have in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Here we have in him you also trusted. You also trusted. Now, after you heard the word of truth modifies this primary statement. Note the order of events here. You trusted after you heard. And you see that here in Romans 10, 14. That's why there's so much importance on being willing to share the good news of Jesus with the people that God has put in your life. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now, in the specific context here, he's talking about persecution that's taking place with the nation of Israel. That's the, that's the context here. But he's saying, at least in this context, we can make the application here to any, any context. How could anyone call on him if they've never believed in him? Why would anyone call for help to one who they've never believed in, they don't trust in, they don't see as dependable and reliable? When your truck breaks down, do you call the one who's unreliable and undependable No. Do you try to call the one who's inept, who's incapable, who can't get their socks on right? No, you call the one that you think can help. Don't call me, I won't be able to help you. <laughs> call me to pick you up. But as far as fixing it, but how can they call on one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? You see that natural, I'm not going to belabor this point because this is a familiar passage. But you see the order of events? You trust after you hear the gospel. You hear the gospel because somebody will present it to you. Now what's it called? I love this, this phrase. 
In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. How is the word of truth described? The gospel of your salvation. See, it modifies the word of truth that believers respond to. It's a fascinating way to describe the good news message of salvation. It's the good news. You trusted in him after you heard the good news. That's why at camp, one of the favorite songs that the young people sing is a song called Good News. Good news, good news. Christ died for me. Good news, good news. If I believe. Good news, good news. I'm saved eternally. That's wonderful. Extra good news. See... See how scaredy, cat, scaredy cats adults are? <laughs> We're so uncomfortable in our own skin. If we had even two kids in here, they would have shouted that louder than all of us, right? We're just so insecure, like, what will people think if I actually shout this this morning? It's extra good news, right? Now we come to the fourth of the... The fourth part of this. So it was the gospel of our salvation. Now, here's the fourth thing, the primary phrase. In whom also you were sealed. So in him you trusted. In whom also you were sealed. In him you entailed an inheritance. And in whom in him is redemption through his blood. So our fourth thing here is right here. And that's what the rest of the verse 14 will cover on too. In whom you were sealed also were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, here's eternal security at its finest. See, sealed involves making secure, marking ownership or authenticating. So this idea of being sealed, made secure. That's where your security comes from. You don't keep yourself saved. You were marked. You, you became his purchased possession. You became a child of God's and he said, I will never let you go. I don't care what you would do. I will never let you go because I am faithful because this was always about me and not about you. You're sealed now by me. You're made secure. You're authenticated. You're marked with a mark of ownership and nothing and no one will ever change that. Can you have assurance of your salvation? The Bible says you can. It signifies a completed transaction and it's evidenced by receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, to talk about a continuation of this comment on the Holy Spirit or to modify that, now about the Holy Spirit, this is said. The Holy Spirit is, who is, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Now, you might think, you might say, He already said at the beginning in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. So what's this talking about? He's the guarantee of our inheritance until the final redemption of the purchased possession is the idea we'll get to here. See, this is a, just a continuation of verse 13. It's now describing the Holy Spirit. A guarantee of our inheritance. It refers to a down payment with a guarantee of more to come. The believer has as a present possession, salvation from sin's penalty. The believer has as a present possession redemption or salvation from sin's power. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the believer has victory over the law of sin and death. 
The spirit of life and godliness has given me freedom over the law of sin and death from Romans chapter 8. So I have freedom from the bondage I was in to sin. I've been freed from the debt of sin that I owed, which was death for sin. That's already a, a possession of mine. I already have that. But until the redemption of the purchased possession refers to final redemption involving salvation from sin's very presence. You can see this here in Romans 8.23. He says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning we have the down payment of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, even though we have that much, we're still groaning because we're eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body that's future-looking, where we'll be given a glorified body, where we'll be freed from and have salvation from the very presence of sin in God's eternal kingdom. A new heaven, a new earth, where we will be for all of eternity. See, believers are God's possession until the redemption of the purchased possession. We've already been purchased by His blood. We were purchased by the blood of Christ. You talk about sometimes people attack the gospel message that we proclaim here at our church. They call it cheap grace. They say that if man doesn't have a part to do to push this thing across the finish line to secure his own salvation, if man has no part in that other than accepting what God has done, that's cheap grace. Is it cheap? Is God, was God's grace cheap? What was, the, what was the cost that had to be expended to buy your freedom? Was it great or little? It was great. God had to send His only begotten Son to die in your place. You were purchased at a great cost. You were purchased at a great price. It may be free to you, but it wasn't free and it certainly wasn't cheap. It's your pride that is causing you to resist that message because there's a part of you that looks around and says, look, look at Laman up there. I deserve this a little bit more than him. It's pride getting in the way from just letting go and saying, I have been bought with a price and it was a great price. I must now just either accept this or reject this. Receive this or push it away. Believe or do not believe. Believe or do not believe. Believe or do not believe. Those are the choices. So then you hear this, see this last part, to the praise of his glory. All of these things, these 12 different things that are talked, these 12 times that being in Christ is mentioned. It all has to do with seeing what God has done for us to provide for our spiritual well-being so that it would promote in us this idea of lifting him up or praising him. It would show others 
a basis for praising God because they would see what God has done in our lives. Again, trophies were examples or illustrations of God's grace. So when people see us and see God's grace in us, they would celebrate Him. They would praise Him because they would say, what, a, what an awesome God that He would do that. Right? That's the idea here, to the praise of His glory. It's, it's the basis, all that God has done in Christ and through Christ and by Christ is a basis for praising God and giving Him the glory. So we see in Christ the title of this two-part series on two parts, I guess, of message on Paul's prayer about what it means to be in Christ. And we saw this phrase or its equivalent 12 times in 12 verses. Now, do you think your identity or how you see yourself positionally matters if he's going to talk about it this much 12 times in 12 verses? Do you think it's important? It's critically important to see yourself not as a child of this world, not as a son of so-and-so, not as a, somebody who does these kinds of things for work, not, as, not seeing your identity as somebody who's in this relationship to that person, not as somebody who has these particular talents and skills or these particular hobbies or interests or this particular political affiliation or this particular school that they go to. I'm a, I'm a Masabi East giant. That's not where your identity is to be. Our identity is to be in Christ. I'm one of His. I'm in Him. And He's in me. So if you're not saved, if you don't know what it means to put your faith in Christ, are you in Christ positionally? Are you in Christ? The answer is no. But could you be? Yeah. Quit trusting in anything else and put your faith in what Christ has done for you. If you're already a believer here, though, this morning, are you living in Christ practically? Are you seeing your identity as in Christ right here this moment? Seeing that whatever it is I'm going through, I'm in Christ? On my best days, I'm a child of God. On my worst days, I'm a child of God. Every day is a good day. Maybe more foreshadowing for you there. But are you living in Christ practically? You should be. You should be. You should be living in a way that would, where you would be the praise of his glory. That's God's desire for your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for these wonderful truths that we've seen about what it means positionally to be in Christ and to identify as being in Christ, to see all of the things that you've done to provide for our spiritual well-being because of our association with your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for all of these encouraging reminders. Pray that it would be encouraging to those who heard it and that they could apply these truths to their practical daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.